of Darius the king, in the sixth month, on the first day of the month, the word of the Lord came by the hand of Haggai the prophet to Zerubbabel the son of Shealtiel, governor of Judah, and to Joshua the son of Jehozadak, the high priest. Thus says the Lord of hosts, these people say the time has not yet come to rebuild the house of the Lord. Then the word of the Lord came by the hand of Haggai the prophet. Is it a time for you yourselves to dwell in your panelled houses while this house lies in ruins? Now therefore, thus says the Lord of hosts, consider your ways. You have sown much and harvested little. You eat, but you never have enough. You drink, but you never have your fill. You clothe yourselves, but no one is warm. And he who earns wages does so to put them into a bag with holes. Thus says the Lord of hosts, consider your ways. Go to the hills and bring wood and build the house that I may take pleasure in it and that I may be glorified, says the Lord. You looked for much and behold, it came to little. And when you brought it home, I blew it away. Why, declares the Lord of hosts, because of my house that lies in ruins while each of you busies himself with his own house. Therefore, the heavens above you have withheld the dew and the earth has withheld its produce. And I have called for a drought on the land and the hills, on the grain, the new wine, the oil, on what the ground brings forth, on man and beast and on all their labors. Then Zerubbabel, the son of Shealtiel and Joshua, the son of Jehozadak, the high priest, and all the remnant of the people obeyed the voice of the Lord their God and the words of Haggai the prophet as the Lord their God had sent him. And the people feared the, feared the Lord. Then Haggai, the messenger of the Lord, spoke to the people with the Lord's message. I am with you, declares the Lord. And the Lord stirred up the spirit of Zerubbabel, the son of Shealtiel, governor of Judah, and the spirit of Joshua, the son of Jehozadak, the high priest, and the spirit of all the remnant of the people. And they came. They worked on the house of the Lord of hosts, their God, on the 24th day of the month, in the sixth month, in the second year of Darius the king. We've been going through the shorter prophets um, that come here at the end of the Old Testament. These 12 prophets, all rather short, so we call them the minor prophets, say very similar things. Uh, the themes of the various books are somewhat unified around judgment and salvation. Uh, the day of the Lord is coming, and that day will bring judgment for those who have rebelled against God. And yet, that day will also bring salvation for those who have turned to him and those who fear him and earnestly seek after him. And so we began um, this second half of the Minor Prophets with Nahum, who uh, foresees judgment that God will bring against Nineveh, and yet that judgment will mean salvation for Israel. And then Habakkuk. Habakkuk laments the delay of God's judgment against evil and yet rests in the promise of future salvation. 
And then last week, Miguel um, taught from Zephaniah, which warns of um, this, this coming day of God's swift and severe judgment against the complacent people, and yet at the same time promises salvation for those who will turn to the Lord and seek to be hidden by him or protected by him on the day of his anger. And this morning, I'm introducing you to Haggai, the second shortest book in the Old Testament, though maybe not the second shortest sermon you'll ever hear. Uh, But Haggai is a very brief book with a very particular concern. So here's the story behind Haggai. The people of Judah, that's southern Israel, had been invaded and carried off into exile in three phases, concluding in 586 BC. So they're exiles. They're displaced from their homeland, and they're now living under a foreign power. So morale is very low, to say the least. Uh, But then, 50 years later, God stirs up the heart of this king. There's a new king on the throne, and uh, and God stirs up his heart so that he makes a proclamation allowing all the surviving uh, exiled Jews to return to Jerusalem. And not only that, he also provides them with all the material resources they'll need to rebuild the temple so that they can worship God. So under the leadership of a governor named Zerubbabel, and a high priest named Joshua, the Jews return to Jerusalem and they begin rebuilding and there's great excitement. You know, they're back in their hometown and they're rebuilding God's house and their own houses. They're they're very excited. Uh, But then reality sets in and two things happen. First, they become somewhat disillusioned because as they think through um, the blueprint for this new temple, they realize that while they can rebuild the temple, there's no way they can regain the former glory of the temple that Solomon had built. It had been huge and majestic and beautiful, attracting tourists from all over the world and leaving them jaw-dropped. There's no way they can regain um, that former glory. And so the wind's a bit out of their sails to begin with. And then, second, they're surrounded by detractors. So as Ezra tells the story, he says, Judah's adversaries in the land discouraged the people of Judah and made them afraid to build and bribed counselors against them to frustrate their purpose. So they had started off in obedience to God and a a zealous desire to, to worship him and honor him, but their zeal had quickly cooled. They had just laid the foundation of the temple when they stopped altogether and they left those good intentions behind. And so onto the scene stepped two men, two preachers, Haggai and Zechariah. And they begin preaching with this very particular concern to encourage the people to begin again, to renew their commitments, to seek the Lord by rebuilding the temple. Don't be afraid. Pick up where you left off. You know, we are very much like Israel, aren't we? We often begin well in spiritual pursuits, uh, but then get distracted or weary or perhaps desires for comfort and ease slowly overtake us. The message of Haggai, then, is a call to God's people for spiritual renewal, recommitting yourself to obedience to God, along with the encouragement that God gives for that pursuit of obedience. Pick up where you left off. 
And this message um, comes to us in four stages, four sermons that Haggai gives over a period of roughly four months. Each of these sermons has a clear theme. First, challenge, and then encouragement, then instruction, and then uh, promise. And so we'll take up each of these messages with their themes in order. First, challenge, then encouragement, instruction, and promise. So the first message is one of challenge. Uh, Consider your ways. This is the whole of the first chapter, which Judy just read, including Haggai's preaching in verses 1 through 11, as well as the response of the people in verses 12 through 15. The Lord here rebukes the people of Israel. They had started rebuilding the temple. They had just laid the foundation when this opposition arose, And so rather than press on, they walk away. They find it easier to work on their own homes um, and and building up their own wealth rather than to work on God's house. So in verse 2, the Lord says, uh, these people say the time has not yet come to rebuild the house of the Lord. As if they plan to maybe get around to it eventually, but um, not while there's opposition. You know, let's add panels to our own houses. And so they divert their attention to home improvement projects and this initial kind of wealth accumulation through agriculture. And so they have um, a priority disorder. They have moved what should be number four on the list up to number one. And, you know, what should be number one on the list of their priorities, they move down to maybe eventually if we get around to it. So they have a, a priority disorder. And so in verse four, the Lord says, Is it a time for you yourselves to dwell in your paneled houses while this house lies in ruin? Now, therefore, thus says the Lord of hosts, consider your ways. Think very carefully about how you're living and what you're doing. And then God poses a question to them. He says, why? Why? You see this in verse 9. The Lord says, you looked for much, and behold, it came to little. And when you brought it home, I blew it away. Why? declares the Lord of hosts. Because of my house that lies in ruins, while each of you busies himself with his own house. So what was the basic problem with Israel? Well, they were prioritizing personal um, short-term wealth and comfort over and above loving and obeying and worshiping God. So the symptom was that they had abandoned temple building. Uh, But the underlying spiritual malady or sickness was a failure in obedience and dependence upon God. And and this is the timeless dynamic where we, like them, begin with zeal in spiritual pursuits of whatever sort, and then abandon those good and right efforts because we find the labor involved is too difficult. So we often find that as we review our spiritual lives uh, and sort of assess the trajectory of them, that it seems as though our best days are in the past. It's been a sort of downhill trajectory since then. Or perhaps as you review your spiritual life, you think of it as a cycle where you find yourself sort of slowing down and then idling and then stalling out. Uh, and then trying to restart. 
Um, so the, these are the kinds of things that we experience when we hit some discouragement from within and opposition from without, and so we easily give up. Uh, for instance, just think of a couple examples. Jesus says to his followers, this is Acts 1.8, Jesus says to his followers, you will receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you and you will be my witnesses. Uh, Spirit-empowered witnesses to the saving work of Jesus Christ. This is how Jesus describes his followers. And yet, maybe as you review your, your own spiritual life, I, I hope that at some time in your Christian experience, you, you can think of a time you've really tried to walk that out. Spirit-empowered witnessing to Jesus Christ. And yet, perhaps you found some discouragement or some opposition in that process. And so as you think about your life more recently, maybe you haven't given any effort in that regard. Or perhaps there's some sin in your life that is what some have called a besetting sin. You know, one of those kinds of sins that just sticks to you despite your best efforts uh, to get rid of it. It just seems to hang on. It repeatedly shows up. But if you're honest, maybe your efforts to get rid of that sin have stalled a bit. And maybe you aren't even making those efforts anymore. It's, sin can be like those barnacles that attach to the ship and slow it down and, and increasing drag, but they're so hard to get off, maybe it just feels easier to get used to the reduced speed. Well, if these things describe you, you know, God is speaking to you from Haggai. Consider your ways. Think very carefully about how you're living and what you're doing. Why? Why? You know, if you're working so hard to be happy and avoid discomfort, why are you unhappy? Why do those efforts fall flat? Because you're busying yourself with the wrong things. God tells Israel, you're looking for happiness in the wrong place. All these things you're seeking happiness in come up empty because they aren't seeking God. Well, how does Israel respond to this challenge? Well, happily, Israel restarts the engine. Uh, look at verse 12. It says, Zerubbabel, the governor over these uh, recently returned Jerusalemites, as well as Joshua, the priest. So this is not Joshua, who's the successor to Moses. This is a later Joshua, at this point in Israel's history, who is a, a priest. Zerubbabel and Joshua, together with all the remnant of the people, obeyed the voice of the Lord their God. And the words of Haggai the prophet as the Lord their God had sent him and the people feared the Lord. Take note of these things. God sent his word to them through Haggai the prophet. God graciously brings his word to them to bring about conviction. And then secondly, they hear the word. They listen to God's word and then they obey God's word. So they weren't just hearers, they were doers. They respond to the word. And why do they respond to the word? It says they obeyed the Lord because they feared the Lord, meaning they came to think more of God's opinion of them than about their adversary's opinion of them. They feared the Lord's displeasure more than they feared anyone else. And so they're deeply concerned about God's opinion of them. And so they hear his word. They obey his word and, and they fear God. And, and we're told how this came about in verse 14. It says, the Lord stirred up 
the spirit of Zerubbabel, the son of Shealtiel, the governor of Judah, and the spirit of Joshua, the son of Jehozadak, the high priest. And the Lord stirred up the spirit of all the remnant of the people, and they came and worked on the house of the Lord of hosts, their God. What a wonderful episode in Israel's history. Uh, So many dark spots in Israel's history. Here's a bright one. This is a period of national revival. Under the preaching of Haggai and Zechariah, there's a great awakening. The Lord stirs up the spirit of the people, leading them to renewed obedience. So the opposition was not gone. The work was not any easier. But the Lord stirred up their spirits to hear his word and to obey his word. We should desire such a work of God in our own hearts and in our church, that God would stir up our spirits so that in response to his word, we would obey him because we fear him. The spiritual renewal is what happens when stalled out Christians renew their commitment to do basically what Israel did here, carefully listen to God's word carefully obey God's word. Because of this new inner disposition in which the heart fears God, we both love him and stand in awe of him. So in this first message, um, we find a message of, of challenge or even rebuke. And so if this first message is one of challenge, the second message is one of encouragement to them. As they renew their commitment to obedience, God brings them a message of encouragement in verses 1 through 9 of chapter 2. So perhaps they got a slow start or found that the earliest work uh, was the hardest or, or maybe Um, They have this remaining discouragement over their inability to recapture the former greatness of the temple. But in any case, they were discouraged. And God meets them in that discouragement, not only with the needed rebuke of chapter 1, but also with this message of encouragement in verses 1 through 9 of chapter 2. So you look in verse 4 of chapter 2. Yet now, be strong, Zerubbabel. Be strong, Joshua. Be strong, all you people of the land. Work, for I am with you, according to the covenant that I made with you when you came out of Egypt. My spirit remains in your midst. Fear not. This is perhaps the strongest statement in the Old Testament of God's spirit dwelling among his people. Now, Zechariah, which Tom will preach from next week, was preaching alongside Haggai and gives some very similar encouragement to the people. So Zechariah says to Zerubbabel, um, not by might nor by power, but by my spirit, says the Lord. So there you have the preaching of these two men. Haggai, my spirit remains in your midst. And Zechariah, not by might nor by power, but by my spirit, says the Lord. And so together they're telling the people, the temp- don't be discouraged. The temple will be rebuilt by your hands. But more importantly, by the power of God's spirit among you. Well, this is the same promise that Jesus gives to his followers. In that verse I just mentioned, Acts 1-8, Jesus says, you will receive power when the Holy Spirit comes upon you, and you will be my witnesses. Or in Romans 8, Paul says that it's by the power of the Spirit that you put to death the deeds of the body. 
Or again in Galatians 5, Paul says, walk by the Spirit and you will not gratify the desires of the flesh. God's Spirit dwelling within the Christian is the empowering strength uh, that we need for walking in obedience and daily renewal of our efforts to uh, kill sin and cultivate fruit, the, the fruit of the Spirit. So this is the encouragement that those of us in need of spiritual renewal need. Uh, but how is this encouraging? You know, m- many Christians find it difficult uh, to get our minds around what it means to walk by the Spirit or to live in the power of the Spirit. So Paul says in 2 Corinthians 3.18 that we are being transformed from one degree of glory to another into the image of Jesus This comes from the Lord who is the Spirit. The Spirit is the one who makes the Christian increasingly over time to look more like Jesus. But how does this happen? What does it mean to walk in active dependence on the Spirit? Uh, Well, that would be a great topic for a whole series of teaching. Um, But it means at least two things. It means at least that we are determining Uh, to walk in obedience to God. We are determining, intending, resolving to obey God. And then also that we are depending on the Spirit as we do that, that we are drawing from His power to walk in that obedience we've determined to do. So someone called it dependent effort. We make effort Uh, But we make that effort dependently, dependent upon the Spirit. Um, Our three-year-old, Olivia, has been saying a lot recently, you know, when Stacy or I will tell her to do something, um, Daddy, it's hard to obey. Um, She'll say it over and over, but it's hard to obey. (laughs) I think, yeah, don't I know it? I, we, we get that, um, we, we see very clearly what God has called us to do. And we say, but God, it's hard to obey. And you know what I say to Olivia? Um, that's right, Olivia, it's hard. So what do we do um, when it's hard to obey? She says, ask God. That's right, we, we ask God for help to obey. But whether you're three years old or 30 years old or 60 years old, that dynamic is exactly the same. Um, we find obedience difficult. And whenever we run up against that difficulty, it should be a, a reflexive kind of Christian instinct to ask God for help. God's spirit is the one who empowers us to obedience. So walking by the Spirit means uh, walking in this sort of active dependence. God, I'm finding this obedience difficult. Please empower me by your Spirit for the obedience that you've called me to here. So this encouragement that he gives them is ours as well. Be strong. My spirit is with you. And, and in fact, for the Christian living under the new covenant, there's something even greater that's true, and that is that the spirit is dwelling uh, within us. So in Romans 8, Paul says, uh, if the spirit of him who raised Jesus from the dead dwells in you, then he who raised Christ Jesus from the dead will also give life to your mortal bodies through his spirit who dwells in you. The spirit not only dwells with you, the spirit dwells 
within you. And so the message of Haggai to us might be, be strong, my spirit is within you. And not only does God ensure them that his spirit remains in their midst, but he gives them another encouragement in verses 6 through 9. For thus says the Lord of hosts, yet once more in a little while I will shake the heavens and the earth and the sea and the dry land and I will shake all the nations so that the treasure of all the nations shall come in and I will fill this house with glory, says the Lord of hosts. Verse nine, the latter glory of this house shall be greater than the former, says the Lord of hosts. God promises to give the temple more glory than they could ever imagine. He says he's going to shake the nations, like you might take a purse and turn it upside down and shake all the contents out to try to find that one thing you're looking for. God says he's going to take the nations and turn them upside down and shake them out so that all the treasure flows into the temple, uh, making it glorious, to fill it up with glory. Now keep this in mind, from, from the tabernacle in the wilderness to the temple in Jerusalem, the significance of these physical buildings was that they were a physical representation of God's presence among his people. So the promise is that God's presence will have a greater glory among his people than it ever had previously. That is a promise that is not fulfilled in stones and architecture, but ultimately in the fact that Jesus came to earth and became God's presence dwelling among us. In Matthew 12, 6, Jesus, referring to himself, says, I tell you, something greater than the temple is here. Jesus himself read these sermons from Haggai, and how do you think Jesus understood them? Well, we don't need to guess. Jesus tells us exactly uh, what he thought about these sermons. He fulfills the promise of Haggai. The later, gra- uh, later uh, greater glory of the temple is Jesus himself, God's presence among us. Jesus is the new temple. Jesus is the new sacrificial system who brings us uh, his people uh, sacrificial forgiveness and ceremonial cleanness, and and he also gives us a template for a life of purity that's fully pleasing to God so that we can follow his, uh, his example. So then through the presence of Jesus among us, we have forgiveness of sin and cleansing from sin, as well as a model to follow. And this is God's encouragement. Uh, his, his son Uh, dwells amongst us. And so we have proof of God's presence among us then, both uh, in his spirit dwelling within us and his son uh, dwelling in our hearts through faith, as Paul puts it. So that his, his spirit is in us, his son is with us, and this is our encouragement as we pursue obedience uh, to God and spiritual renewal. So if some of the minor prophets are full of doom and judgment, um, Haggai is one of those prophets that we call a prophet of hope. When you think of Haggai, you should think not only of renewed temple building, but of hope. This is a message of encouragement for us as it was for them. 
Uh, But there's more. Uh, There's a third message that Haggai preaches in verses 10 through 19 of chapter 2. And this is a message of instruction, a message of instruction. And this message begins uh, with a couple of questions to illustrate a point. Uh, There in verse 11, you see these questions. Thus says the Lord of hosts, Haggai, ask, ask the priests about the law. If someone carries holy meat in the fold of his garment and touches with his fold bread or stew or wine or oil or any kind of food, does it become holy? The priests answered and said, no. Then Haggai said, if someone who is unclean by contact with a dead body touches any of these, does it become unclean? The priest answered and said, it does become unclean. Then Haggai answered and said, So it is with this people and with this nation before me, declares the Lord, and so with every work of their hands. And what they offer there is unclean. Now I'm guessing um, that the principle that Haggai is getting at is not quite transparent to you as we read those questions. But the the principle is basically this, that um, you, you don't become holy by contact with holy things but you do become unclean by contact with unclean things. A person does not become holy by contact with holy things, but does become unclean by contact with unclean things. Holiness is not transferable. Uncleanness is transferable. So they, they were evidently making offerings and sacrifices. They were obeying, at least in that sense, And yet, in many other very important ways, uh, they were not walking in obedience. They were not prioritizing uh, worship of God and rebuilding uh, the temple. And yet, they, they thought that their partial obedience over here in one area more than compensated for their disobedience over here in this area. It's like they were uh, inflating their good works and trying to sort of hide their disobedience behind their backs, leaving them in this position of sort of naive optimism about their position before God. We're often naively optimistic about our spiritual condition like they were. They think, I attend church somewhat faithfully, and lots of people say I'm a really nice person. And I really don't get that angry very often. Um, We feel good about ourselves, in other words. But again, you don't become holy by contact uh, with holy things, like going to church or occasional good deeds. You know, we often inflate those things to more than they really are. And at the same time, we often minimize our shortcomings Um, We like to not think about how many times we've actually sinned in the past 10 days. And breaking the law even once makes you a lawbreaker. So you can't say, I attend church on Sundays, therefore I'm doing well. You've broken the law thousands of times. How could an occasional good act uh, compensate for that? Even if righteousness were a matter of weighing the scales, which it's not, the scales would never fall in our favor. We are like Israel, you know, unclean, totally unclean because we're partially unclean. Uh, Lawbreakers because we've broken the law. Totally unacceptable to God because of our sin. So how in the world can we come into the temple? How in the world can we come into God's presence? This is the real problem, you know. how How can we come into God's presence and expect blessing from him? 
Well, now, here's the beautiful news of Christianity. Jesus, again, is this holy temple. He is the fulfillment of what the people were supposed to build. He is God's presence among us. And Jesus introduces a new principle, a new principle that was not at play for Israel. His holiness is transferable. By contact with Jesus, people do become holy. By contact with his holiness, we can become holy. Uh, You may remember the story in Luke 8 of the woman who touches Jesus and just upon touching him is made clean and Jesus says to her, daughter, your faith has made you well. By faith in Jesus Christ, we can get cleansing for sin and we get his righteousness. Jesus has offered to give his holiness to us. But what then of the punishment? You know, according to this principle that Haggai is teaching, we are lawbreakers and lawbreakers should be punished. Well, again, just as Jesus was righteous for us in our place, so he was punished for us. He was punished in our place. At the Last Supper uh, that Jesus shared with his disciples before he was crucified, he takes the bread and he broke it. He said, this is my body broken for you. And he takes the cup and says, this cup is my blood of the covenant, which is poured out for many for the forgiveness of sins. His life in our place, his death in our place, his righteousness substituted for our wickedness and his punishment substituted for our perishing. Listen to how Paul puts this in 2 Corinthians 5.21. For our sake he made him to be sin who knew no sin, so that in him we might become the righteousness of God by depending on the forgiveness um, that Jesus offers and the righteousness that Jesus offers. We, we can come into God's presence for blessing. And look what God says to Israel in verses 18 through 19. Consider, uh, 18 through 19 of chapter two, consider from this day onward, from the 24th day of the ninth month, since the day that the foundation of the Lord's temple was laid, consider, is the seed yet in the barn? Indeed, the vine, the fig tree, the pomegranate, and the olive tree have yielded nothing. But from this day on, referring to the day of their turning to him, turning back to him, the day of their obedience. From this day on, I will bless you. So they had experienced famine and setback, um, and and this was in part because of their failure to obey in temple temple building. The foundation had been laid, but then they stopped. But now they turn to God. They repent of sin, and they turn to God, and in faith, they walk in obedience. And now God says, I will bless you. I will cause you to flourish in all the ways you've been um, looking for happiness and coming up empty, floundering. I'll make you flourishing. This was God's instruction for this stalled out community about how to restart the engine. Turn to me in obedience. And now, for us, that means turning to Jesus by faith, uh, looking for holiness in him, not in ourselves, depending upon him for that. And so God has challenged uh, this community. 
He has encouraged them as they pursue obedience and instructed them about uh, the nature of holiness and how to get it. And now Haggai delivers a fourth and final message in verses 20 through 23, a message of promise. So read with me beginning in verse 20. The word of the Lord came a second time to Haggai on the 24th day of the month. Speak to Zerubbabel, governor of Judah, saying, I'm about to shake the heavens and the earth and to overthrow the thrones of kingdoms. I'm about to destroy the strength of the kingdoms of the nations and overthrow the chariots and their riders and the horses and their riders shall go down, every one by the sword of his brother. On that day, declares the Lord of hosts, I will take you, O Zerubbabel, my servant, the son of Shealtiel, declares the Lord, and make you like a signet ring, for I have chosen you, declares the Lord of hosts. Well, there are two main components of this promise. You can probably guess them. Judgment and salvation. These are the themes of the minor prophets. Uh, the promise of judgment is against the nations. So there's this threat, a theme that kind of runs throughout the minor prophets of these, these oracles of judgment against the nations. You have woe to Nineveh, woe to Assyria, woe to Babylon, and, and so on. And the point is that the nations are representative of those who rebel against God. The threat of God's judgment is against those who rebel against him and do not seek him. And that applies not only to the nations, but also to Israel. Those of Israel, God's people who do not seek him, will be judged. The judgment is for those who rebel against God. But on the other hand, uh, there's a promise of salvation. In verse 23, he says, The Lord says, I will take you, O Zerubbabel, my servant, the son of Shealtiel, declares the Lord, and make you like a signet ring, for I have chosen you, declares the Lord of hosts. Well, what's going on with Zerubbabel and with this, this promise? Now, Zerubbabel was a descendant of King David, and Jesus was a descendant of Zerubbabel. So in terms of the family tree of Jesus, Zerubbabel sits about halfway between David and Jesus. And further, the Lord calls Zerubbabel my servant. He also uses the word chosen. And, and these terms are very typically associated with David or with the Davidic king, a, a role ultimately fulfilled in Jesus, the Messiah. And then further, the Lord says, I will make you like a signet ring, uh, which was a symbol of royal power, much like a crown or a scepter. So in other words, the Lord is promising here to reestablish a king over his people. The promise of a Messiah has not evaporated. Uh, God affirms that promise here. If the nation had been discouraged and perhaps despairing in exile without a king on the throne, God renews to them his promise uh, of a Messiah over his people. So the promise is this, the nations will be judged and overthrown. Evil will be overthrown, but those who fear the Lord will live happily ever after with the Messiah as their king. Well, this is a word of promise that brings eternal perspective. This is a promise that shapes the Christian worldview. You know, we Christians are people who are living in preparation uh, 
for the world that is yet to come. These kingdoms in which we live will be shaken, but there is an unshakable kingdom which is coming. I want you to hear these words from Hebrews chapter 12. Hebrews is really a long sermon um, preaching on a series of Old Testament passages. And he actually, part of that sermon comes from Haggai 2. Um, and he derives some encouragement for it, from it for the Christian. The Lord says, Yet once more I will shake not only the earth, but also the heaven. Referring to Haggai 2. This phrase, yet once more, indicates the removal of things that are shaken, that is, the things that have been made, in order that the things that cannot be shaken may remain. Therefore, let us be grateful for receiving a kingdom that cannot be shaken, and thus let us offer to God acceptable worship with reverence and awe, for our God is a consuming fire. So Christians are those who live in the midst of kingdoms that will be shaken. We live in a kingdom that will be shaken. And yet we are awaiting a kingdom that cannot be shaken, a kingdom that is ruled over by Jesus himself. So we may be fighting sin and experiencing opposition around us, and yet we have hope that this promise will be fulfilled for us. Because Jesus rose from the dead, the sting of death is gone, and we have hope of life eternal. John Owen calls this the death of death and the death of Christ. By faith in Jesus, we too will rise from the dead unto eternal life. The past victory of Jesus over death guarantees us that he will make good on this promise given to Israel through Haggai. We have this promise standing before us in our future. What Israel didn't expect was that the coming of Christ would happen in two stages. He would come once to defeat sin, and he would come back again to establish his final rule over all things. And we now live between those two comings. He has come once to defeat sin, giving us even greater encouragement that he will make good on this promise and come again to establish his final rule over all things. We live as someone said, between D-Day and V-Day. D-Day was the death and resurrection of Jesus, the decisive defeat of the enemy. V-Day is the second coming of Christ, when the enemies will finally and fully surrender. The hope of final victory then is so much more vivid and unshakably real for us because we have this conviction that the battle that decides the victory has already taken place. And so this promise forms for us another encouragement to spiritual renewal. That is, another encouragement to live in light of the world that is coming more than we live in light of the world in which we live now. It calls us to right priorities, uh, to worship God in all that we do. And the problem with Israel in Haggai's time was not paneling their homes and planting their gardens. My guess is many of us have done those kinds of things this week. Uh, The problem was that they were not uh, worshiping God from their hearts. That was not uh, their first pursuit. 
So Haggai calls them to put first things first. As you reflect on this book, perhaps you identify with Israel, disordered priorities, maybe stalled out spiritually in one way or another. The message of Haggai to you is to renew your efforts. And even if you don't feel totally stalled out, you know, listen, listen, these, these are the dynamics, um, dynamics of spiritual renewal that every Christian needs every day, just the process of daily new, renewal. Again, Haggai speaks of a God who has graciously spoken in his word. Are you listening? Are you delighting in the word? The people listen to the word. What, what is he saying to you? They fear the Lord. They think highly of God's opinion of them. Uh, They fear his displeasure. Assess yourself. God says, consider your ways. Are your priorities aligned with God's priorities? Or or where might they be out of order? Then go to Jesus uh, for cleansing, for holiness, for forgiveness. Go to him. Walk by the Spirit for change and growth and obedience, uh, walk in dependence upon the Spirit. These are the dynamics of spiritual renewal that constitute the path that the Christian walks. And so as we reflect on these things, we must ask God to stir up our hearts to listen to his word, uh, to obey his word, and to, um, for all those ways in which we don't obey, to go to Jesus daily, every morning waking up and saying, God, I'm depending today on the righteousness of Jesus Christ. I thank you that I'm accepted by you because of his righteousness. I don't have to earn that myself. And yet God, help me today to walk in that righteousness and to walk in obedience Those are just the things that a Christian ought to be doing every day. So let's ask for God's grace uh, for help in these things.